Welcome to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare, the show that shares stories, experiences, and advice from notable and innovative leaders in healthcare. Leading in healthcare is incredibly challenging. So if you are looking to learn firsthand from nurses, physicians, administrators, and other healthcare professionals in leadership and management roles, this is the podcast for you. Hosted by Leah Wuchik, leadership development expert, executive coach, healthcare professional, and president and co-founder of Tall Trees Leadership. We talk with today's successful healthcare leaders on how they get to where they are, lessons learned along the way, and what it takes to thrive as a successful leader in healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Leah Wuchik. Anne Messer, MD, is the founder, executive director, and board chair of One Good Turn, an Austin-based global health nonprofit that provides practical medical education and culturally robust medical care to often forgotten communities. Dr. Anne Messer is a board-certified family physician with more than 30 years of experience in family medicine and urgent care. In 2016, Dr. Messer founded One Good Turn to give health workers worldwide the resources and knowledge to help build self-sustaining and healthy communities. As founder and executive director, she focuses on building strong strategic partnerships with health workers to build actionable medical training sessions that aid in the development of these low-resource communities. One Good Turn provides the local health staff of these communities the physical exam skills, diagnostic reasoning skills, and the health knowledge to approach rational treatment to better serve their communities. Dr. Messer holds a Doctor of Medicine degree from Rush University Medical College in Chicago, Illinois, and did her residency work at Harvard University and Central Texas Medical Foundation, where she focused on a triad of internal medicine, psychiatry, and family practice. In addition to one good turn, Dr. Messer is a Fulbright specialist with the United States Department of State, where she developed a clinical curriculum in Cambodia. Most recently, she was awarded the Inspire Humanitarian Award by the United Nations Association, Austin Chapter. Dr. Ann Messer lives in Austin, Texas with her husband, Tim, the family dog, Ziggy, and their three grown children nearby. Together, they enjoy each other's company, outdoor sports, and good food. Hello, Anne. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you, Leah? I'm doing very well. Thank you. I am so thrilled to have you here on Central Line Leadership and Healthcare um, because you bring a completely different perspective that we haven't yet talked about. So it's very new for myself and our listeners. So thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. And yeah, nonprofit work, if that's what you're saying that you haven't done yet, is a kind of a category of healthcare, that's for sure. Absolutely. Well, first off, maybe I'll get you to share a little bit about your journey to the work you're doing now. Where did you start? Where have you been? And along the way, what were some of those key turning points or crucibles in your your journey that have brought you here? Okay, wow, that should pretty much take up their entire hour on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, let's see. First of all, One Good Turn, which is our organization, um, provides practical medical education to clinicians out there in the most remote areas of the world who are already seeing patients and taking care of their communities, but who have very little formal medical education themselves. So they're out there kind of swinging in the dark. They don't have internet connections or advisory groups or professional organizations or even friends that they can turn to to get advice and knowledge. And uh, obviously that's very different from our system here in the Northern hemisphere. And I got started doing this many years ago, kind of a long story, but got frustrated with materialistic Christmases and canceled our Christmas and took the family with on an amazing um, tour through a group called Road Monkey. And we went as a family to Nicaragua where the plan was that we would help build a clean water project. And when we got there, they discovered that we were doctors and just handed my husband, who's a physician and myself, a box of old cardboard medications and said, please just go on the same places that you were going to do the water, but take care of people. There's so much medical need up in the mountains. And we went very distant to the mountains to the point where you couldn't drive a car anymore. And then you couldn't take a bus. And then there was no Jeeps. And then they put our medicines on the back of a donkey. And then they started carrying them themselves. And forded rivers. And we got to these communities where despite the lack of internet or electricity, there was no electricity up there. People still somehow knew we were coming. And we saw hundreds of patients over the 10 days that we were there. And all of them had really basic medical conditions like gastritis or asthma. And it just, we took the best care of them that we could, but we didn't have very adequate medicines. And I was just left with this struck by this feeling that these people could solve their own medical problems with just a little bit of knowledge and the right medication. And it just made me, I couldn't go to sleep at night thinking about it. So I started doing all sorts of medical missions. I worked with an amazing nurse here in Austin who taught me how to get the appropriate medications from a good inexpensive pharmacy to bring internationally. And I've worked with Christian groups that were bringing the word of the Bible along with their medical information. And, and as I went on and on with these different groups, I realized that who I really wanted to be working with was the providers themselves. And that often doesn't happen when you're doing a, you know, I'm doing air quotes, a medical mission where a group of doctors from America or elsewhere come into a community, you know, oftentimes somebody hires a white tent and that everybody who works at the clinic takes the day off and you see a thousand patients. And that seems like a good thing. And I just realized that if instead we could come in very quietly and work sitting next to the clinicians side by side and teach them right along with seeing patients so that we can model good physical exams, model the appropriate questions to ask, and then discuss the medications that they have available to them and, and make choices based on those medications that we could really, really elevate the level of care that was being provided. Hmm. Sounds fascinating. And uh, what an interesting start in that it sounds like you didn't expect to maybe be on this path until that experience where you meant to be doing clean water projects and ended up doing something very different. Yeah, totally. I mean, I love taking care of people who have you know fewer resources than I do, because I just think that's part of what we should do in the whole world. Hence the name of the organization, One Good Turn, because one good turn deserves another. Um, but you're right. I would, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, if I'd be doing this, I would not have thought yes. 
Yeah. Wow. So with One Good Turn, uh, what is it specifically that One Good Turn does? Let's see. It's simple, but not easy, I guess, is the basically how it works. We are typically contacted by an organization who has recognized that they have a medical problem in their community. For example, right now, we're working with um, a group of community health clinics in very remote Uganda who realized that their clinicians didn't really know how to take care of type 2 diabetes, which is rampant in that community. So people come to us with that type of a problem. And then the first part of the thing is that the process is that we uh, do a very extensive needs assessment. So we really study the medical needs of the community, who's already there, what's being done, what types of medications are available to folks. Is it expensive? Is there a lot of sort of witchcraft or natural medicine that's going on in the community? How are care providers viewed? All those sorts of things that help us figure out how we can best interact with the group of folks that we're dealing with. Then we send out a questionnaire and sort of assess people's level of knowledge already so that we can kind of meet them where they are. And uh, then working with the community, we develop a protocol to address whatever medical situation they're working on for type two diabetes. We went back and forth and made sure that we were recommending the medicines that they knew and you have to change blood glucose management is in decaliters when you are in Africa, where, you know, here in America, it's in milliliters. So there, that sort of thing got really different. Um, and they were very interested in nutritional control of diabetes, which I think you see somewhat less here in America. And that led us to have to learn a whole lot about the typical diet in Uganda and what may or may not have a lot of calories or cholesterol in it. It has been really, really interesting. And then together we build a protocol that we now our next step, which we're just about to do is we'll go and disseminate to teach this information to the actual local clinicians there who know that this has been going on all this time. So they're sort of excited to see what's going to come of it. And they kind of know us by the time we get there, just because we've been working together. And then we teach them and watch them to see how they do and then follow along over the next year or so and, you know, reinforce learning and and be available if there's any questions, just to make sure that whatever protocol or protocols, we typically do four at a time when we actually travel to a community, um, are, are really embedded in the knowledge base of those clinicians. I appreciate you mentioning the word community several times. And it sounds like that's a primary focus of your process is to look at it from a community perspective. um, And from that holistic perspective, as opposed to just looking at the medical side of things. I think you can't do medicine unless you know about the community, because how you're in such a void, if you don't understand what people's priorities are, who are the important social players, where people can get their food, what the education system is like, what the religious values are. I mean, you have to know all of that in order to, I don't know, just even have a chance of, of providing a learning experience that is going to stick with people. It's really important to get to know the whole picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious to know, how have you been received? Like, what's the reception of the medical providers in the communities or the community themselves? You know, it's really been an interesting journey. By and large, we are begged to come back (laughs) over and over and over. 
which is really interesting. Usually when we actually go into a clinic at first, the people who know we're coming are typically happy that we're there. Whoever gets surprised by that, which is, you know, sometimes a, a midwife, I mean, honestly, they're way better at delivering their babies than I would be ever at delivering their babies, but who doesn't want their, you know, the way that they do things to be upended, like sort of the preconceived notion that I'm going to come in and say, hey, you're doing this all wrong. You need to do it the American way. And I never do that. So I think quick, not quickly, but with time, people find that our organization doesn't try to tell them that they're doing things wrong because- they're not. How could we know that? We, they're doing things right. I mean, we, there's no possibility that we could possibly understand the best way for them to practice healthcare. But we can team with them and make sure that they aren't missing some information, say, about the right medication to give somebody for gastritis or the side effects of steroids as used for back pain, for example. That's a really common, common thing that we see. Um, and then once you start to work with people and find that common bond, the thing that that's why I love being in the field and I miss it so much is one of my greatest joys is just working to find some place where we both do things together, some common bond that we do the same way. And then once you've got that, you can just really expand on that, whether it's how cute the babies are or... <laughs> laughing at some funny man's expression when you tell him you got to take his blood pressure or, or the, what the first time somebody actually hears a heartbeat and you can see it in their face that they actually have heard that heartbeat. It's just, those moments are remarkable and they, they create relationship. And then trust comes, I think from being in a good relationship with people. So I, I just love that part of the job. The passion you exhibit is so uh, tangible, and uh, I can hear your love coming through for for the work that you're doing, and also for the people that you're working with. And I hear so much humanity in that. And I'm I'm curious then, uh, what is your approach to building those relationships and building that trust? Well, the first thing is that to be a teacher, you have to be a great student. And so I go in wanting to learn more about other people's lives. I consider it a privilege beyond any privilege I've ever had in my life that I can enter somebody else's world and have a seat at their kitchen table, to use Joe Biden's expression. That, that is such a profound honor that I would never want to abuse it in any way. So I think that that coming at this from this from the place of being a learner is really really important. And waiting, I mean of course, you know, I here I am I'm I was the kid in kindergarten who had their hand up and their mouth over their their other hand over their mouth so she didn't blurt out the answers. I always want to tell people <laughs> I've got so much good information, you know, but that doesn't work. You just have to wait until you've gotten enough information from them that then you can start to be share your own thoughts on something or perspectives that are always have to be supporting as opposed to contradicting. You know, it's the whole thing about saying yes and as opposed to yes, but. There's such power in language. And when you say yes and as opposed to yes, but, I think that's a, a perfect 
capture of what you're saying around how you approach relationship building, trust building. And I really hear that sense of curiosity coming in. As you mentioned, you have to be a learner first. What do you think others in medicine or healthcare can take from that, maybe across all disciplines and in all practice areas? Hmm. Well, I think probably the first one is that we can that we all need to really know that we can never actually understand somebody else's experience. And so to respect, you have to work at it hard to respect where somebody else is coming from, if they're a non-compliant patient or if they're late, or if they get angry at you when you're talking to them and they ask too many questions, that there's something going on in their experience that we as healthcare providers are lighting them up in some way and we don't know, we're never going to know what that thing is, but just recognizing that, that it's not personal. And so there's a, there's plenty to be said for being, having patience and, and saying, Hey, I can offer you this, this thought, you know, this is an educated opinion. And, and, you know, I hear you if it's not something that you're interested in. So that's, that's kind of bland, but I think that that is something that extends across all kinds of medical care. I think it's linked to what you said earlier about meeting them where, where they're at. It's tricky because you do meet people where they're at. A lot of times people think they know what's best for themselves, but of course they've come to the doctor. So maybe they don't actually. And it is true that we have a specialized medical education and can probably offer a view that the person wouldn't have been able to find on their own or a, a perspective on whatever they read on Google. So that part's tricky too, because I think that's where you, where it's very important to, to remember that you are a teacher as well as a student, like that the end point of the relationship is the opportunity to teach. But I think that that's implied in all of it. So that at some point, like for me in my work, you know, I don't run an entire nonprofit organization to go only learn about other people's medical problems. And they don't invite me just to tell me their perspective. So we already know the contract kind of implicit contract going in is that I've got something to teach them. And then the question, how can I best do that in a way that will maintain a good relationship over time? And so true also in just a regular medical care, people go to the doctor because we've got something to tell them. We've got expertise in an area that they don't have. And so then the question is, how do you sort of brush off or see through, not brush off, brush away or move through some of these other things that can make that a complicated relationship? So I'm sure you've come across many complicated circumstances and and instances. So what are some of those challenges that you find that you face on a regular basis? Oh, there's so many. (laughs) So of course, first of all, you know, there's a rich white woman complex, which of course, you know, as soon as I'm involved in the equation, the outcome is going to be different than it normally would have been. So if I say to somebody, hey, was this a good medical experience for you? They're always going to say yes, unless they're really mad and want to say no for some other reason. So there's that. Making sure to align with leaders in the community is really important. And finding out a way to do that, that is like never involves anything like exchange of money. Like we don't pay people. I do actually pay my translators. That's really important, but to make sure that our 
that our relationship doesn't become transactional in any other way than sharing of knowledge. That's, that's an interesting challenge, but you just do that by being very straightforward with what you're going to be giving. So I think that that's complicated being a leader of somebody in a different language when you really don't know the impact of what you're saying on them. I spend a lot of time saying, can you tell me what did I, can you explain to me what I just said to you? <laughs> the teach back, that helps. I think teach back really, really helps um, me make sure that we're both talking about the same thing. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, I imagine a lot can be lost in translation, literally, but also figuratively as well. Yeah. You know, we're actually... These last two years of not being able to travel, we've, we are writing our medical protocols now, as opposed to me just verbally teaching them. And that has turned out to be a remarkably challenging job because you have to, it, it's medical stuff, right? But you have to use words that are non-medical because nobody goes to medical school. Like we go to medical school. I mean, our double language and all our lofty grammar and all that hoo-ha, people don't have that in the rest of the world. <laughs> And then it also has to be translatable. So that's even more complicated. It needs to be image-based so that people can see what you're talking about. It needs to be culturally appropriate, which is so important when you're talking about sanitation and you know sexual practices and how to take care of babies. All that stuff is just so culturally appropriate. So there's so many different aspects that writing these protocols has been really challenging and interesting. It takes a long time. You have to do a lot of research and they're very simple things. And we're talking gastritis, asthma, upper respiratory. We're just doing one on chest pain right now, seizure disorders, you know, some of the most common things that we see when we're doing global health work. What was the process then to figure out actually how to do that? How to use this different approach of writing these protocols versus verbally teaching it? What was that process like for you? Well, it's been, thank you for asking. It's actually been really interesting and complicated. I feel bad for my team because they haven't traveled to the places I've been. So I know how we have to say this because I have been doing it for, you know, 20 years, not that long, 15, I guess, at least. Um, and they don't. So like the, everybody knows, keep the word simple, make it simpler, make sure you run. I've got another amazing doctor, Dr. Spalding, who works with me. Make sure you run the medical information by the doctor so the dosing is correct. Um, and then I just read these things as if I'm somebody that I know is out there living in these incredibly remote areas where, where people live and they don't have, you know, maybe there's one television on the street if they're incredibly lucky and, you know, people wear little plastic shoes and, and they, they eat one or maybe two meals a day. And I mean, it's, everything's dirty and it's not their fault that everything's dirty. The world is just friggin' dirty. I mean, that's how it is. And, and <sighs> So I can, I have all these people in my head that I know that I'm talking to and I can't wait till we get back out there so that my current team <laughs> will be able to have those people in their heads too. <laughs> yeah, that's remarkable that it sounds like you can almost visualize that person that you're talking to and, and write as if you were actually there in front of them. That's exactly what I try to do. Yeah, beautiful. And, and so on that note, what are some of the countries you've been? 
you know, we've been to a lot of different countries. We've been to Cambodia. I think I've been there three or four times, probably four times now, maybe even more. I've been to Kenya probably five or six different times, been to Uganda, Nicaragua, to the Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, Peru, uh, Mexico. I've worked down in the Mexico-American border. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting someplace, probably a couple of places, but sort of all over. We essentially so far, we have worked, I've never been to India. I would love to go to India. Um, I we work, I sort of call it the tropical belt, but it's the places that are closer to the equator where a lot of the illnesses are the same. So that like scabies is a very common skin condition that we see all over the world. So the scabies protocol works if you're in Cambodia or if you're in Nicaragua or if you're in Uganda, it's the same thing. So that that's great. So it means that our protocols stretch across that general geography. How do you make the decision where to go and, and who to serve? Well, you know, it's been really providential so far. We have just keep getting people just reach keep reaching out to us as a board. My board is working with me to try to extend that reach a little bit. It's tricky because then you get into involved in funding and how important it is to have enough funding to do more than one project. We now belong to this amazing organization called Catalyst 2030 that is around social entrepreneurs trying to make sure that the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals actually come true by 2030, which is a massive challenge. But they wow. are, yes, they are connected to many boots on the ground organizations that are out there to help in social development. And I think that that will help us reach more communities who could use our services. And having said that, pretty much every community that doesn't actually have real doctors in it could use our services. And that's pretty much every community in the world. I mean, the numbers are just astonishing. It's like we have, I can't remember what it is. I should be able to roll these numbers off the top of my head, but we've got a doctor in America for every maybe thousand people. No, never mind. I'm not going to say the numbers because I'm going to be wrong and someone can look them up so, so easily. But in a lot of parts of the world, it's 250,000 people to one doctor. And so there's no way that they'll ever see a doctor in their entire life. They're going to see their village health worker for their whole life. And what a glory Mm -hmm. to make sure that the village health worker knows how to treat scabies, one of the most common conditions, skin conditions in the world that you can treat with by taking one pill, washing all your clothes, putting everything in the sun, and then taking one more pill a week later. That's pretty handleable. Given the massive need, how do you keep yourself from becoming completely overwhelmed? (laughs) Who says I'm not overwhelmed? <laughs> <laughs> Completely overwhelmed. We're such a little organization. We can't possibly do it all. I think the biggest thing I'm personally coping with right now in my life is overwhelm because, you know, I'm in a situation now where I have to do fundraising as well as do the work that we're just discussing, as well as stay in touch with our people. And, um, you know, I'm a doctor, damn it, not a fundraiser. There's got to be a <laughs> somewhere, but And so that's been really hard for me in terms of feeling overwhelmed. Like you mean despondent about the world, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't feel that because one of the things that's so remarkable to me about these incredibly remote places that I go is that people are still happy. Like you get this image, we in America, I mean, you in Canada too, I'm sure 
you know, you get this image of people in like less developed countries that they're like eating worms out of the dirt and their clothes are in tatters. And they, and, you know, sometimes they are eating worms out of the dirt and their clothes are in tatters, but they still look up with big smiles and people still laugh, hug each other. And, and I, you know, I absolutely recognize the need for development, but the world is not a despondent place. It's just people in a lot of different places and everybody has the capacity to learn and everybody wants to learn. That's beautifully said. And I think you bring up a very good point that we often make a lot of assumptions about the way others live. And also to your point, their level of contentment or happiness that comes along with that. Contentment and happiness are two different things. I have to stop you there. I've got to say two things. Yeah. One is fed a lot of images about the rest of the world so that we think those people are scary, dumb, and dangerous, which they are not any of those. And, and I just have to say contentment means that you're good where you are. Happiness means that you're happy in spite of where you are. And I don't see where I go, but I certainly do see happiness. How amazing is that? So on the, on that note, then I'm curious to hear if there's been a a patient or a person that you encountered that just touched your heart and and changed the way you work. Oh my gosh, I can think of like a thousand people dancing <laughs> across my, <laughs> across my brain when you say that. You know, somebody. I've told this story before, but I'm still going to tell it again because just it, it just really made a huge difference to me. I was working at a school. We were coming to the very end of our time there. And always at the end, I offer to see any of the staff and their families that if anybody has a medical concern that they'd like to be seen. And uh, this one woman who is a teacher at the school came to me and she had three children with her, her three children. And she said, Hey, I just wanted to talk to you about my stomach. I've been having a lot of stomach aches and gastritis. I think it's gastritis. It's very common for people to give, give you what they think their diagnosis is. I have gastritis. What pill can you give me? That's a very common. I have, I have pneumonia. What pill can you give me? And so we started talking a little bit about her stomach pain and she was having some bloating. And then I said, well, when is your last period? And she said, well, I don't get them very often because I get the depot shot. And I said, okay, well, when is your last depot shot? And it had been several months prior to this. And I said, well, you know, that would have worn off by now because it's been five months or six months. And you, since you've had that shot, they just last three months. She said, yeah, I know. Couldn't afford to go get the next one. Anyway, I said, well, I think we probably need to check to see whether or not you might be pregnant. And I felt her belly and she had a pretty big belly. And I had, I carry a fetal Doppler with me everywhere I go. So I said, let's just take a listen and see whether or not you have a baby. And her face, she got really nervous and she kind of shoot her kids off. And suddenly it was so weird. This happens all the time in places like this. Everybody was just shushed away and it became this woman's gathering. We were in this empty schoolroom, and the, there were 10 women there with me. The women of the school gathered around because obviously this was their good friend. And she lay down on a rickety bench no pillow or anything like that. It was, it was the only place I could find for her to stretch out. And I took my Doppler and, you know, put the gel on and everyone leaned forward and we listened and listened. And then finally we heard that little, it's really soft, but very fast, that rapid sound of the heartbeat. And all the women just went, Oh, and they all leaned back and they were all like, enjoy, like so cool, like so happy they got to hear that. Wow. It's a baby. And I looked up at the mom's face 
and she was about to start crying, despondent. And she said, doctor, I, how can I take care of another child? This isn't the right dad. I don't know what to do. I can't have another child. I don't, but if I could hear the baby's heartbeat, it was way too far to do anything medically about it. Plus that's impossible for me in that circumstance. It's not impossible, but possible for me. And it was, she said, I, I knew I was safe because I never bled. I never bled after that shot. And so they were under the misconception that the egg comes after the bleeding. No, the egg comes before the bleeding. It's when the egg passes that you have bleeding and nobody there knew that. And it was so basic. It's another super, super basic thing. And so I'm like, okay, we got to do family planning everywhere we go, everywhere we go. And so that's gone way high up, even though it's very politically incorrect, that it's going to be something that we talk about. It was one of the last trips I took before we couldn't travel anymore, but we're putting together a really nice little family planning informational thing so that people know that fact and a lot of other facts. Yeah. Wow. I mean, first off, you're a remarkable storyteller. So thank you for sharing that. And what a moment to um, be in a room where there was so much joy, as you said, the other women hearing that heartbeat, but the mother being so despondent about the situation and the circumstances and from that, that lack of knowledge. Yeah. Just from something super simple. She was doing everything right. She just there and she thought it was going to be okay because she hadn't had a period yet. Do you know what happened with her? You know what? I don't know what happened with her. I'm sure she's had that baby by now. A, a powerful story. And, and what a perfect example of taking that and saying, hey, here's a big gap that we, we can help with. Absolutely. With all of these remarkable experiences, and I'm sure you have so many stories what I'm curious about is what have you learned about yourself through experiencing these moments? Oh my gosh, that's an amazing question. And nobody has asked that. Wow. Um, I have learned that faith is incredibly profound and it doesn't necessarily mean faith in God, but just faith that everything is going to be okay. Like finding that somehow I don't know. I don't, that's probably not even quite describing it enough, but the fact that everybody in the world is going through the same thing, we're just all so lucky. What have I learned about this about myself? I I think I have learned that I'm an incredibly faithful person. It has profoundly strengthened my belief in a unifying force I can't say just one because I work in, you know, a million different religions. It makes me feel lucky to be alive every single day. It makes me, God, you're going to, I'm going to jump on a flight this afternoon after the conversation and go to my job that I love to do so much. Uh, I, it's, it's taught me that I'm a teacher and a student. And it's also made me love my family incredibly because I have to leave them to go do this. And that's very hard for me. I love being a mom myself and a wife just as much as I love seeing moms and wives out there in the real world. You know, the fact that you bring up the, I'll say sacrifices, you didn't use that word. So I may be using a word that doesn't resonate with you, but you make sacrifices in order to do this work that you love. You're away from your family in order to do this work. 
that is definitely a sacrifice when it's happening. The other thing for me is that there's a lot of this job right now that is, does not sing to me the way the things that we've been lucky enough to talk about today do, the administrative aspects and how much time I spend on a computer and the fact that I don't see very many patients here in America because I'm so busy doing this other thing. And so I do feel like I, I get to do something that's so unusual and so lucky, but it's got a ton of baggage that goes along with it. And I have to figure out somehow a way to be, have more equanimity about that stuff instead of being fresh time. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that for sure. You said something that really struck me about everyone in this world is going through the same thing. And I think often we forget that. I think it's easy to forget that. So if you think about healthcare providers in Canada and the US and beyond, what do you want them to know about the work that you do that's important for the work that they do? How about that education is empowerment? And if you educate your patients or other healthcare pr- pr- care practitioners enough that they know why they're doing the thing that they're being asked to do, they can make a decision based on their own agency. So if they know why taking a blood pressure medicine is important and what it's going to do, we need you to take this blood pressure medicine because we don't want you to have a stroke. It prevents that because it takes the extra salt out of your system and your blood volume is lower. So then they know that's why they're peeing and they're peeing a little bit more because they don't want to have a stroke. Then they can have more agency over their choices. So I guess I see education and empowerment as being something that we can do as doctors that's pretty cool. And not just doctors, nurses do it actually probably more than doctors. But it's so interesting what you're saying about the education and empowerment and agency and the link between all all of those pieces for for whatever healthcare provider it happens to be um, giving that education. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, Anne, I'm curious then, if people want to learn more about you and One Good Turn and also how they can support you, where should they go? Our uh, website is www.onegoodturn.org. You can reach me at Dr. Ann Messer, D-R-R, no, just D-R-A-N-N-M-E-S-S-E-R at onegoodturn.org. Um, they can reach you and you can reach me. <laughs> That's great too. And uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody about any of it. Wonderful. That is fantastic. And uh, all really good information. And absolutely, I'm happy to connect anyone to you if the need arises, if they can't find you directly. So and it's been such an honor to have you here. And again, I would love to have you back again, because I think there's so much more we could talk about. But just in closing for today, I'm curious if you have any final words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the people listening. Oh my gosh. Just get out there and do it. Whatever it is that's waking you up at night or that you you start tapping your toe with happiness when you think about it. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a big old fat nonprofit organization or a little skinny one like us. It just needs to be your 
I mean, just do, just go, you know, I started this and I knew, did not know what I was talking about when I started one good turn. I mean, it was, this has just been a journey in my, in my knowledge base and, and passion for it has developed. I'm so grateful that I have had that chance. So I would say it doesn't even matter if it's a knitting club or visiting somebody in jail or, or going outside and running around with your dogs and, you know, whatever, just, if you have a passion, don't wait to start it. Just go ahead and do it. Cause it's, it just is in the moment is when it's so incredibly rewarding. Wow. I love that. That's so energizing and inspirational. I have a big grin on my face. So thank you for being here today. And uh, I can't wait to have another conversation with you down the road. Thank you for your time and your wisdom and, and your energy. Oh, you're so welcome, Leanne. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm just, it's an honor and a delight that we've been able to chat together today. Thanks so much for joining us today at Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare. Also, if you liked what you heard, please head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, if you'd like to learn more about our host, Leah Woodchick, check out talltreesleadership.com.